Olaso. There's a phrase I learned a long time ago from the Tibetan. It's hardly a phrase, it's just a couple of words strung together. Chanju Sembe Lamboche. Chanju Sembe Lamboche. Chanju Sembe means of the Bodhisattva, and Lamboche means the great path, the great path of the Bodhisattvas. Chanju Sembe Lamboche. It's like a freeway. In America, we call it freeways. Italy, autostrada, autobahn, motorways, motorways, etc. But we all know what they're like. I know them especially in America. And I know what it's like to be, especially in the city, when the freeway is elevated. And you see the cars zipping along, getting to their destination just right off. And here you are clogged down maybe, you know, 50, 80 feet beneath the freeway. In this heavy traffic, everywhere it's blocked, one-way streets, in a city you don't, even, you don't even know, and you're wondering, I wish I were up there. How do, where's the on-ramp? You ever had that experience? Where's the on-ramp? Shall I go this way? Shall I go that way? Is there an on-ramp? Did they just skip the city? And you just you know, wander around, and you know, maybe I overshot it. It can be very frustrating to see, I know I, that's the path I want to be on, and I can't get my car to jump. And it's so close and so far away. <laughs> and it can be the same thing out in the country, where you know there may not be an on-ramp for five miles, and you don't know which, what direct, which direction to go. Or maybe it's one of those awful spells where there's no on-ramp for 20 miles, and you just can't get on. And so there is this great freeway of the bodhisattvas, straight, zooming off to enlightenment, where the, once you're on it, the path is so clear. That's it. From the Prajnaparamita, Abhisamarankara, the stage of generation, stage of completion. Once you're on the path, I mean, it's just crystal clear. Highway science everywhere tells you how you have to stay on, you know, in this practice for so long. It's crystal clear. The only problem is where are the on-ramps? Is an on-ramp going off and practicing Lama for, for a year? Maybe, but did you get onto the freeway? Is it practicing a three-year retreat, but did you get on the freeway? Is it practicing three months of mindfulness? Did you get on the freeway? And if you're not on the freeway, you're not on the path. That's the long and the short of it. And so I've, I've known yogis, one in particular comes to mind, practiced years and years and years, many years, very sincere, very disciplined. And after many, many years of practice, he said, in terms of the path, I don't know where I am. Now, that's very possible he was simply speaking out of sheer humility. And it's very possible he was simply speaking out of sheer honesty. There's no question to my mind, I know this person very well, that there was enormous amount of virtue, discipline was excellent, motivation was excellent, but it wasn't clear to me either, the path. And nowadays, and I'm speaking really now of the context of Indian and then Tibetan Buddhism or Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, we hear so many lamas, Rinpoches, Tukus, His Eminence this and His Holiness is that. There's so many holinesses growing up. Uh, cropping up, um, and this one's Manjushri, and this one's Amitabha, and this one's this, and this one's... What I'd love to hear is a reference to some great Lama and said, he's achieved the path of accumulation. That would just have me yowling for happiness. You mean actually achieve the path of accumulation? Where can I find him? A path of preparation? This one actually achieved the path of seeing. These are classic. This is not sectarian at all. This is core Mahayana Buddha Dharma. 
path of accumulation, preparation, seeing, path of meditation, path of no more training, you're finished, right? It's odd that back in the time of Atisha, they did make references to great beings who had achieved this path, that path. And now, in terms of lamas who are living nowadays, this is, not a, this is not a denigration of anyone. I'm speaking of terminology. But I think it's an accurate... I've been listening for 40 years. The terminology seems to have disappeared from the current landscape. Point to me to a lama that you know of. This lama, oh yes, there's, by his, his or her, more, more women than Mary, as far as I'm concerned, but, the, but by this person's, this lama's peers recognizing this person has achieved vipassana, shamatha vipassana, this person on, on such a level. And not simply, how do you say, almost like spiritual aristocracy. Well, this person is reincarnation of Padmasambhava, this one's Vimla Mitra, this one of Milarepa, this one of, you know, that's all very well. But in this lifetime, have they achieved the path of accumulation? Have they reached the Chanju Sembe in this lifetime, are they on that Janju Sembe Lamboche, that great freeway of the Bodhisattvas streaming with no intersections, no stoplights, just freeway? So to my mind, that's what really what Buddha Dharma is about. If one is following the, the Shravakayana, this noble path of the disciples seeking one's own liberation, which is a noble pursuit, it's stream-entry, it's once-returner, non-returner, and you're finished, you're arhat. That's the path, that's marga. When we're speaking of the, from the Mahayana context, we have five paths of the shravaka, the, solid, the, the disciples' path. We have five paths of the pratyeka buddha, the solitary buddhas, solitary realizers. We have five paths of the bodhisattvas. To my mind, really, that's what dharma is about, is to achieve marga, the path, to actually be on the path, so, to my mind, I know this is my great passion. I think it's probably my greatest passion, and I have a lot of passions, but I think it's my greatest passion. Just to get on the path. Of course, Buddhahood, of course, goes without saying. But if you're not on the freeway, then how do you get to the destination? Downtown, traffic jams, everything blocked, detours, potholes. <laughs> you need to get on the freeway. And so what we're doing here we speak shamata, 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 as if it's a big deal. Well, it's a big deal and not a big deal. In terms of the larger picture, it's a very small deal. In terms of the near term, it's a very big deal, because shamata, together with the four immeasurables, provides on-ramps. It's on-ramps. It's finding where the on-ramp is. Ah, here it is. I can line up, and this, I just have to wait in line, and then, then I'm on the freeway. And if I go far enough, get over maybe in the fast lane, I'm irrever irreversibly on the freeway. The gold-like bodhicitta. You won't slip off the freeway. Just stay in the fast lane. This freeway only goes to one place, Buddhahood. So don't mess over there in the slow lane. You might get detoured. Stay in the fast lane, straight. So we have, how many on-ramps do we have? Seven. That should give us a good shot of getting on this great and noble path of irreversible bodhicitta. And as soon as you're there, as soon as your mind has been tuned, and that's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing here. We're really tuning body and mind. As I meet each of you individually, what I hear from all of you in, in very diverse ways, you're not punched out of a cookie cutter, 36, 37, 8 individuals here. But what I'm hearing is you're tuning your instrument. 
You're tuning it and you're hearing sounds. You're tuning it and you're getting somatic experiences. You're tuning it, you're having a lot of emotions coming up. That's part of the process. It's coming up, you're tuning it, you're assimilating. You're maturing. William James spoke about attention a long time ago, more than a century ago. And he said the training of the attention, he said this is a tremendous character builder. This builds character such that, and I think I can almost remember it, he said, a person who has inured himself, that is, has developed this inner strength, inured himself, it's not a, a common English verb, but a per one who has inured himself to really training his attention will stand, what did he say, will stand firm in the winds of change when others are blown away like chaff. That's not a direct quote, but it's pretty close. It builds a strength of character. It does. A simple thing like following your breath, but for doing it six, seven, eight hours a day, for weeks on end, and not having entertainment, not having the buffer zone between you and your own mind, your thoughts, the restlessness, the agitation, the ups and downs, the body going through all kinds of gyrations, and standing firm, developing that strength to withstand the assaults of your own inner maras, you know, and standing firm. And that's where this strength comes from. So we are tuning the instrument, tuning the instrument of the body, and I think a lot of you are feeling it every day. And you know now, you're getting a, a clearer and clearer sense, what is the referent of this word prana? That's what you're experiencing, some in the heart chakra, some in the head, some in the, in the guts, some throughout the entire body, uh, manifesting in a myriad of ways. There's prana, and you're tuning the prana instrument. And you can see from the descriptions, the classic descriptions of actually achieving shamatha, that your tuning is finished. That is, on the relative level, you're not a Buddha, of course, but when you actually achieve shamatha, go back and Tsongkhapa is as clear as anyone I've ever seen. And this is what he really highlights, that when you achieve shamatha, it's not just that you can meditate for four hours, it's not just that you have very fine stability and vividness. You had that before. You had that on stage nine, stage eight, it was really, really good. But with that discontinuity, that abrupt shift, when you actually achieve shamatha, it's not just that a counterpart sign arises and so forth. It's not just bliss. Well, you can get bliss all kinds of ways, from drugs, from sex. Bliss grows on trees. You just have to find the right tree. But this is a kind of a bliss, of course, that arises from within. But it's this sequence when you actually achieve shamatha, where there's first, first arises this pliancy, a buoyancy, a suppleness, a malleability of the mind. You've already achieved stage nine, so you're ready again. Your water is ready to break, and then boom, you slip in, and there's the first sign. This pressure on the top of the head, kind of a, a friendly, kind of warm, not, not unpleasant pressure on top of the head, as if you were bald and had somebody pressing their hand on top of the head. That's the first indication. That's your water's breaking. And then, and something really interesting must be happening in the brain, but then you find this mental pliancy, buoyancy, prashrapta in Sanskrit. Xinjiang in Tibetan. Something unprecedented has happened here. Now you feel like a world-class gymnast of the mind. The mind supple, light, buoyant. And you experience that for a while. And then, that, and then you see this catalytic sequence from the buoyancy, the pliancy of the mind, then this catalyzed something. It's top-down. It's mind to body. It's consciousness to the prana system. And now there arises this buoyancy, this lightness. There's this surge, this flow of energy of prana. And it's called lelung, karmic, karmic energies. 
dynamic energies coursing through the body. It's like now that just the final, the final blockages are just now just falling away. You know what it's like when a dam breaks. It goes, it springs a leak, it springs another leak, and then it springs another leak, and then it's really leaking, and then, and then just it gives and goes, and all the water just goes flowing out. Well, all the blockages now just gone. They just have all broken down. And now for the first time, unprecedentedly, it's a complete free flow, a surge, a surge of prana that courses throughout the entire body and giving rise with that, again, this lightness, this buoyancy, suppleness, all of these English words trying to capture this prashrapta in Sanskrit. And then out of that arises the physical bliss, saturating, how do you say, making for the time being you really can't do much. Just sorry, you just have to take a pause for ecstasy because you're just now overwhelmed, basically. You're saturated. You're, it's a physical. You are now aware of your body very vividly. And it's just kind of like it becomes an embodiment of bliss. And then like a, a cup where you're just pouring in and then the cup just spills over the top. Then the bliss of the body then spills over and utterly saturates your mind. And your mind becomes just bliss. And once again, you can't really do much. Just, you know, grin and bear it. And then it tapers off. Then it tapers off like a, like, a, like a pot that's boiled over. And then when it's boiled over, then it just goes back to simmer, but boiling all over the stove. But then it just goes back to a simmer. And now it's just simmering. It's not going to boil over any longer. Now it's just simmering. Well, now you're just simmering in a quiet flow of bliss and well-being. A priti in Sanskrit and sukha. A bliss and well-being, but they don't overwhelm you it's just now a total flow of a profound sense of bliss and well-being, but one in which you can do, you can apply this marvelous suppleness of the mind and of the body for that matter, and do something really meaningful, like develop bodhicitta. So it's really all about on-ramps. And the great on-ramp is shamatha, by way of the four measurables to bodhicitta. Develop a bodhicitta and then you're on. And once you have developed a bodhicitta, complement that with the other wing of enlightenment, with wisdom, with insight, then all the teachings, all the classic teachings of the stage of generation, completion, Tekjut and Turkiel, Mahamudra, the six yogas, Naropa, those are just all designed for people on the freeway. You know, they're really not designed for people who are still caught in traffic jams downtown. We can practice them. But that's where we get the old statement from the Tibetans, there are many profound practices, but not very many pra profound practitioners. Because you would like to be on the freeway, you're, you're driving as if you're on the freeway, but I'm sorry, you're in downtown traffic. You have not tuned your body, you have not tuned your mind, you have not made your own body-mind into a suitable vessel to hold bodhicitta, to hold and sustain vipassana, and then to go into the fast lane of Ajrayana and finish what you began. So, we're tuning, tuning the instruments of our body and mind, sometimes quite painful, sometimes not so painful, sometimes boring, sometimes all kinds of things, but it's worthwhile. And to see it for yourself, I would, I, some, some years ago I read Matthew Ricard's um, translation of the autobiography of Shapkar. Shapkar, one of, the, one of the many great yogis, Milarepa-style great yogi, cruising along the great Chanju Zembe Lamboche, the great Bodhisattva Highway, freeway, right? 
as I got really curious, it's a big, it's a big book, it's a long book. Matthew did a lovely job, of course, of translating it. But as I saw this man who was just so clearly on this great path, I got really curious, oh, oh what about shamatha? What about shamatha? You know, where did that fit in? And I looked and I looked, and he found it. I found it. You can go to the text and you can read it. He said, and then I went up in the mountains to practice shamatha. And I realized bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. And then I proceeded from there. <laughs> that was his autobiography of achieving shamatha. I thought, I would have liked a little bit more. Could you expand on that? <laughs> you know, what were you doing? What was the method? How long were your sessions? How long did you do it? What were you eating? Can I be like you? <laughs> you know? And he just kind of said, uh, it's almost like, what was it, Julius, Julius Caesar? I came, I saw, I conquered. Vidi, vidi, vinci, something like that. I came, I saw, I conquered. So that's what he did, Shapkar. I came to Shamata, I saw Shamata, I conquered Shamata, and then I was on. Bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. Then it's Asom. <laughs> then <I> finished. <laughs> so I would like to call him back. Hey, uh, that was very nice. Would you expand that section a little bit, please? That would be very helpful. Oh, Lasso. So we are tuning the mind with the Shamata, and I think it's quite clear to all of you. By any means, mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, awareness of awareness, tuning the mind until the mind just melts. And then you don't need to tune it anymore. It's melted into the substrate consciousness. But we're also, of course, bearing in mind that, as this came up in the conversation with Ilsa a couple of weeks ago, I think, that the Tibetan term that we commonly translated as mind, it's jitta. Well, of course, that's body mind. Body mind, Buddha mind, body mind, bodhicitta, bodhicitta. Chanjuki Sem. And so clearly, it's not mind as in the Western sense of heart and mind, this kind of business. It's heart-mind. And so we're developing the more cognitive aspects by way of the shamatha, and the more affective and cognitive, that is to do with as, as, aspirations, ideals, yearnings, longings, cultivating this with the four immeasurables, and then seeing how they interface, how they tune each other. So on that note, let's return to the four immeasurables. It will be a silent setting, sitting. And I invite you to choose whatever you find most helpful. If in doubt, or practicing meditative cultivation of loving kindness or tonglen is certainly always a good, a good place to go. So it's be a one half hour session.
Let's bring the session to a close. Oh, Nasu. A couple of interesting questions from Ilse. First of all, when practicing resting in awareness, my breathing gets very extended, that is to say long and shallow, little air is moving. Is that okay? Yes. Very simple answer. All is well. A tiny bit of elaboration. And that is when you are quite confident from the beginning that you have indeed settled your body in its natural state. You're not slouched over, you're not slouched over, you're not crooked. Whether in the supine position, that's fine. Whether sitting, but when you're confident, yes, I've settled the body in its natural state, it is relaxed, it is still, and it is vigilant. When you are confident that you've rest, you really have settled, released, you're breathing into its natural rhythm, whatever that may be from breath to breath knowing that natural is not one particular pattern. It's whatever the body needs from moment to moment. But when you're confident that you're breathing without effort and without inhibition, without pushing it, without constraining it, when you're confident of that, and when you're confident that you're resting your awareness to the best of your ability, nothing perfect from the beginning here, but with the qualities of your awareness, your mind being at ease, still and clear, then that's the time to trust. That's the time to trust your body, your mind, that it really will settle more and more deeply in its natural state, that the pranas will really start to flow, the blockages will start to unravel or to break apart, and your mind, the knots, the entanglements of the mind will unravel, and you can trust it. You can trust it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll quote again my teacher, Gyatura Moche, years ago, when he was teaching some of his, well, a lot of students, many of them had been studying with him, training with him for years, and I think a number of them were kind of frustrated or disappointed they hadn't made more progress, you remember? And he turned to them, I was translating for him, and he said, Oh, you're frustrated, you're not making enough progress. You've been practicing all these years, and still, where are you? You have got a problem. And the problem is you have too little faith. And he said, I'm not speaking about faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Guru. You have too little faith in yourselves. Too little confidence in yourselves. So, there's certainly misplaced confidence. Our minds can be heavy, heavily inundated by mental afflictions, in which case don't trust your best judgment. If you see that your mind is not settled in its natural state, it's in the claws, like your mind has been carried away by the great eagle of you know, craving, hostility, delusion, and so forth, not a good time to trust the mind, because it's been kidnapped. You know, the mind has no control, it's out of control, it's been carried away, right? But when you see that the mind has been settled, the body is settled, then it's time to trust it. And so, this is exactly what's happening. Your breath is flowing in its natural rhythm. The body, like a gracious host at someone else's home, 
excuse me, like a gracious guest at someone else's home, is taking from the environment just the amount of oxygen that it needs and giving back just what it doesn't need, you know, from breath to breath. So then it's a good time to trust. If at any time you feel gasping, if you feel tension building up, then of course that's the time to double check. But as long as you're, you still feel in body and mind at ease, very relaxed, that you are indeed getting all the air you need, then whatever it is, then you just trust it. Okay? So, very practical question. The short answer was yes. And then here's an interesting question, very simple, but it is an interesting one, and it's a deep one. Could you please explain about merit, where it comes from, and so on? It is such a generous gesture. It is indeed. The word merit, I think, I won't try to retranslate it. It's sunam in Tibetan, punyan in Sanskrit. Uh, and it's standardly translated as merit, so I won't try to rock the translational boat. Maybe there's no better word for it. Um, merit is something that can be, can be accumulated, it's something that can be lost, and it's something that can be directed. That's what we can say about merit. Merit is accumulated by engaging in actions that one can phrase this various ways. Here's the way I'm going to choose first. Merit is accumulated by engaging in action of body, speech, and mind that are in, that are in accord with reality. Acting, treating others in an I-it relationship. This person will give me pleasure. This person's really a nuisance. This person I don't really care much about. That's not realistic. Because people are not its. I mean, pardon me for the obvious statement, but people are not its. They're sentient beings like ourselves. So to treat them as, the, as if they are less than what they are, as if they are simply tools to be manipulated for our own gratification, that's not realistic. To act out of self-centeredness, as if my well-being, in fact, is more important than anybody else's individual well-being, or let alone collectively, everybody else and then me. Oh, I'm heavier. That's not realistic. It's not true. It's just that. It, this, isn't be, this isn't being pious, it's not being religious. It's just flat out, it's not true. And also, moreover, to reify subject-object, to reify the bifurcation between subject and object, and then act on that basis. That's not realistic. And so we actually are undermining our merit when we act out of accord with reality, act in accordance with reality, in accordance with wisdom, and then when wisdom goes into action, it manifests as being compassionate, altruistic, caring, then that is how merit is accumulated. We call it virtue, engaging in any act of virtue. Accumulates merit. So what is it? That's how it happens, though. That's how merit happens. You can be sitting and doing nothing at all, verbally or mentally, and accruing oceans of merit. Fantastic amount of merit. Shantideva, oh, probably the most... He and, and more recently, or... Oh, uh, who wrote a whole book just in praise of, of, of bodhicitta. And you see, cultivating bodhicitta, the amount of the, the magnitude of merit of cultivating bodhicitta. He said, oh, in terms of burning off negative karma, he says it's like a supernova. That would be my, my modernization of the fire at the end of the eon, where it looks like a supernova, it just consumes all the planets, you know, going around it. Uh, just massive purification, massive accumulation of merit through the cultivation of bodhicitta. And of course, the four measurables are just streams flowing into bodhicitta. And then likewise, the other one that is comparable is meditating on and gaining realization of emptiness. Now we're getting real. Now we're getting lucid. Not only in a dream, not only with respect to our own minds, which occurs in settling the mind in its natural state, we're just kind of getting real altogether. And that is, it's reality as a whole. 
to meditate upon and gain realization of emptiness. Tremendous accrual of merit, accrual or accumulation of merit. But even the tiniest acts of kindness, giving someone directions, um, just any gesture of kindness, sitting down with a motivation to purify the mind and spending five minutes watching the breath, all of these are ways of accruing merit. All actions of virtue are ways of accruing merit. And what is a merit? I would say metaphorically, it's a type of energy, a type of energy that is stored in the continuum. So it's stored in, and I suspect this is probably true. You'll rec recall, if we used to use the Dzogchen terminology, it's not a sectarian issue, it's a semantic issue of just how we're using the words. But if we use the Dzogchen terminology, then we say, what carries on through the course, the stream, the thread, from day to day to day, month to year to year to decade, through the course of a life, and then from lifetime to lifetime? What carries on? And of course, it's the substrate consciousness, subtle, continuum mental consciousness. If we slip into the Vajrayana mode, it's also that subtle continuum of prana, of energy. And of course, no substrate consciousness would be complete without the substrate. Right? You can't have one without the other. And so it is consciousness, energy, and space. Indivisibly intertwined, like three threads that, that threaded together create a rope, right? And you really can't untangle them. You can't take them really apart. And so this merit is something stored in that continuum. I strongly suspect it's stored in that flow of energy of prana, just as memories, karmic imprints, and so forth are stored. That's according to Kala Chakra. That's where the karma is actually stored, is in the jiva, the jiva, that flow of energy. So a type of energy, I think, obviously it's a word that's used for everything, you know, but I think I can't think of a better word, so I'll say it's stored as a configuration of that energy that flows throughout the course of a life, from, from lifetime to lifetime. It can be eroded, it can be, how do you say, it can be undermined, it can be, one can subtract from that accumulation, one can add to it. Hmm. But then, very importantly, it can be directed, just like a, a person driving a car. You direct it with a steering wheel. Our aspirations, our motivation directs how that, motivate, how that merit will come to fruition. So it's merit, what you can count on, since this one can say is the energy of virtue, the energy of virtue, what you can count on is it will give rise to something good, something that is beneficent, something that is in the category of well-being. So it might be it might be just fantastic, uh, how would you say, fame. Fame like a Tiger Woods or a Madonna or even George Bush, very famous man. And so fame is something that, from the Mahayana context, fame is something you can use like a, like a, like a, a fork and a knife. Fame, beauty, beauty, and I don't give, need to, if there are beautiful men, there are extremely attractive men, women, also other sentient beings, Beauty, wealth, prestige, power. Odd thing about a person, some, great, some of the great dictators and military generals of the past. It took great merit. It took great merit to, to gain that type of power. Military, political, and so forth. You don't get that without having a tremendous amount of merit behind it. So someplace along the line there was great merit. And then it got directed. You could direct that anywhere. You could direct it to bodhicitta, to realization of emptiness, to becoming bodhisattva, enlightenment, liberation. But you've got, it's got, you've got capital. If you use an economic metaphor, you've got capital. Well, capital is capital. 
You can use it to buy a Maserati. You can use it to buy a school for 500 children. It depends on your motivation. <coughs> so, but what's it really good for? That is, if you're a bodhisattva, and, and that's, there on hangs the tail, if you're a bodhisattva, and let's just make the wild speculation that His Holiness Dalai Lama is a bodhisattva, then physically, he's, I think he's a, he's a, he's a good-looking man. He's, he's a striking man. It's nice to look at him. Tremendous charisma, very intelligent. He's now very famous. Even though he himself doesn't have a, an enormous amount of money, he knows a lot of rel, well, very wealthy people. So if he called upon them, I'm sure he could marshal funds here and there, which he does for one good work after another. He has power enough that he terrifies the government in Beijing. That must be something, <laughs> you know, that he's still such a thorn in their sides. So there he is, a simple Buddhist monk, but he still terrifies them. Otherwise, they'd say, oh, Dalai Lama, whatever. And they'd just ignore him. Or, oh, come, come back home, we don't care, you're just a monk. You know, they wouldn't mind, but he's got power. And so, power, fame, wealth, prestige, beauty, influence, all of these in the hands of a bodhisattva are like a beautiful set of cutlery and pots for a master chef. You use them all. They can all be used for great benefit. Now put them in the hands of a dictator. I don't need to give names. Dictator. Same things. Wealth. Maybe they'll ever get looking and power and all of that. And you can just use that to enslave a whole population. So that's where it's all motivation, motivation, motivation. But I'll end on this point. I've been reading just a little bit each night, very little. I didn't bring any books with me, but I have the Dhammapada and the commentary on my computer. Um, even when I'm borrowing a computer, I, got my, I brought my Dhammapada over to the borrowed computer. And what's remarkable for each of the verses, or each of the couplings, the, the pairs of verses here, this, in this lovely commentary, then there's, there's some story from the life of the Buddha. And I'll just give a, a, an abbreviated account of one. The great Sariputta, Sariputta and Moggallanaputta, or Mahamoggallana, the two principal disciples of the Buddha. They were both born in a very privileged class, so they had many servants and so forth. And then, quite simultaneously, they both just developed this great yearning to find moksha, to find liberation. So they left, like, like Gautama, they left their homes, they went out, they followed a teacher. Um, I think his name was Sanjaya, but I don't remember exactly. I think that was so a wandering ascetic. He had many disciples, but they weren't really satisfied. They weren't finding what they were seeking. And so they decided to split up. The, the, these are two bosom buddies, I mean, closest friends. And before they split up, they made a pact with each other. We both know what we're looking for. We're looking for true liberation. Irreversible, complete, total liberation. Nothing less. Not just samadhi, not all the other things. And so, but let's cover more ground. These are two smart guys. We'll cover more ground. You, you go where you, you go your way, you go, and I'll go my way. And whichever of us finds it first, let the other one know. So they went out seeking. And the person who became known as Sariputta, or Shariputra, Shariputra, I'll just stick with the Sanskrit. He was out wandering, and one day he saw a monk. And it was one of those occasions where his eyes lit upon him. And I'm going to show my old hippie, hippie days. There was something about, the, something about the way he moved that moved him like no other. He saw this monk, and it just, I tried to imagine, it was just like he couldn't take his eyes off of him. There was a serenity there, a purity, 
a clarity of countenance. Just his whole demeanor was utterly sparkling clear, radiant, serene, and he was just walking. He wasn't giving some fantastic teaching or levitating or doing something really impressive. He was just walking. And Sariputra or Shariputra gravitated right over to him. And he asked the common question that these shramanas, these wandering ascetics, would ask of each other, just as a common greeting. Friend, who is your teacher? What teaching? What path are you following? There's something about you I'd really like to know, you know. Where is this coming from? And the monk's name was Asaji. Asaji. And he responded, even though he had already gained profound realization himself, he said, I'm only newly come to the path, so I'm no authority. But this I can tell you. And in this little commentary, it didn't tell him the verse, but I'm pretty sure I know the verse. So if I'm wrong, it's not disastrously wrong. It will not cripple your path, cripple you on your path. But I believe the verse that he gave him was this, and I'll try to translate it fairly closely, but I really should have it written down. I don't. But the verse goes, the, the, the Tathagata, the one who has gone thus, the enlightened one, he has revealed the causes of those phenomena that are, arise independent upon causes, or causally originated things. The Tathagata has revealed the causes of causally originated things. And he has revealed the causes of the cessation too. That is the teaching of the great sage. Ye dharma hetu prabhava. He gave him that one verse. This is still in response to Ilsa. He gave him that one verse. And Shariputra realized nirvana. He became a stream mentor, Yunjupa. But then this Asaji said, I suggest you simply seek out the teacher himself. That's what I can tell you. But find the teacher yourself. And he might have said what was so often said back in those days, Ehipasi, Ehipasi, come and see. I think it's my favorite phrase in Bali, Ehipasi, Ehipasika, come and see. And so Shariputra was so inspired by this, I mean, suddenly he'd found what he's looking for, that he sought out the Buddha. But, and I don't remember the exact sequence, but of course, being the good friend that he was, he contacted his friend Moggallana Buddha, Mahamogalana. Same thing happened. Realization of Nirvana. And then the two sought out the Buddha and then very swiftly achieved everything. All the four jhanas, all the four samapatis achieved Nirvana straight away. It's very, very quick. How can it happen that a person could hear a simple phrase like this? The, the Tathagata taught the causes of causally originated things and he taught the causes of the cessation too. Thus are the teachings of the great sage. And you achieve nirvana. How is that possible? I just said it. <laughs> Doesn't seem to have worked. Was it me or was it you? <laughs> so this is merit. This is merit. How many lifetimes it took for Sariputra, Shariputra and Madhgalyayana Putra, how many lifetimes it took for them to have that type of ripeness not only to meet Asaji and to immediately become stream enters, but to have that extraordinary karma, almost inconceivable karma, to be the two chief disciples of the Buddha, to read teachings directly from him. That's merit. So many, many lifetimes. 
So we find, and I've been reading story, you know, phase or episode after episode in the Buddhist teachings. And so often, in so many cases, among monks and lay people, among, uh, for a princess and, a, and, a, and, a, and her father, the father, uh, Ananda Pintika, was a stream mentor. His daughter became a once-returner. And some of them become a, become a stream mentor, achieve nirvana, and then go off and get married. You know? It sounds like, oh, that was easy. Stream mentor must be a piece of cake. I mean, all you have to do is hear a verse of Dharma. You know? Yeah, it's merit. And so this is why Tibetan, in the Tibetan tradition so strongly emphasize preliminary practices. Accrue merit. And this is why in the whole Buddhist framework, this notion of accruing merit, it's getting the energy so that there's little and little, less and less dust on your eyes. So that when you sit down and let's say you practice shamatha, you get onto the path of shamatha and you practice for a while vidi, vini, vinci. Vini, vini, vici. Is that right? Vini, vini, vidi, vici. I think that's it. Whatever. I say, I saw, I came, I saw, I conquered. You come to shamatha, you practice it, you achieve it. That's if you have a lot of merit. Don't have a lot of, ma- don't have a lot of merit. I came to shamatha. Oh, I had so many problems. <laughs> many, many problems. I had black widows arising in my, in my med- meditation hut. I had so many emotions coming up. I got kicked out by my landlord. I had... Mm. Yosemite Sam as the landlord for the, for the land I was saying he loved to get drunk and he loved guns you know one thing after another it's not to say that these marvelous students don't have merit but they don't have quite enough merit to avoid Yosemite Sam and the landlord from hell <laughs> and then there's the internal so merit just makes the path clear that's what merit's for okay Tene. Then we have one from Mary. A few times during mindfulness of breathing, I've noticed a very subtle vibrational energy that is so subtle, I only notice it when it stops vibrating. What causes this to happen is the opening of a hole in the vibrational field which brings with it utter stillness and quiet. I can see through the hole what looks like a bright, pale sky. This lasts a second or two, the hole closes, the vibration starts, and I lose it again because it is so subtle. I would love to know what is happening here. And I'm I'm just going to have to apologize. It's an excellent question, but I just have to apologize because this is what came up. There's something happening here. (laughs) What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there telling me I got to beware. I think it's, I think it's time we stop. Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. <laughs> Jefferson Airplane. What's going down is what's going down. It's the, the blockages of prana opening up, manifesting emotionally, imagine, imagine, um, manifesting somatically, manifesting auditorially, visually, all different ways. And I think that's really all we need to know. We come back to the central point, the same one, to Ilsa. And that is, and it's the, perhaps even the most important point for this retreat, this little itty-bitty, eight-week joyride, and sometimes not so joyful ride. Um, Confidence. That when we leave here, Preferably today, that is not that we leave here, but preferably today, but before we leave here, by the time we leave here, that we leave with confidence. 
for whatever the practice is, the three modes of, of shamatha, the four applications of mindfulness, having the confidence that when you're doing it correctly, you know you're doing it correctly, and now it's time to have confidence that what's coming up is okay. It's really okay. And overall, you can let it be. Now, this is not to say that our confidence will be infallible. It's not to say that if we think we're doing the practice correctly, we're absolutely guaranteed you're totally doing it correctly. We can't have that confidence. We can have a lot of confidence, but it shouldn't be so much that it's arrogant. Well, I decided it must be right because I decided it. Um, but nevertheless, on a very reasonable, within a reasonable context, knowing, just reviewing, reviewing, you've been doing the practice now for six weeks, lots of instructions, there are texts out there. So when you have the confidence... I began by settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state. I was doing the practice correctly, and this is what came up. Overall, you can trust it. And then just let it be. Because there's all kinds of nyam, these meditative experiences will arise. If at any time, and we always want to have our feet on the, on the ground and never relinquish common sense, good old-fashioned common sense. If at any time we feel that something that's coming up may be a medical problem, then we check it out. I had some little thing with my left eyelid. I know, it was, I was just about sure it wasn't a nyam. But my, it hurt. It hurt a lot. It was swelling up. And um, Adelina gave me some lotion, and now it's going away. Yes, now it used to hurt every time I blinked. And now I can blink, and it doesn't hurt anymore. So that wasn't a nyam. That was just some little irritation on the eyelid. So I asked the doctor. She gave me a little bit of very simple lotion, and that did it. So... It's, so it wasn't time to think, oh, it's a yum, yum, blink, 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 ouch, ouch, ouch. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a little teeny-weeny medical condition. And then you take lotion and you deal with it. But if, you, if you're really quite confident it's not a medical condition, then just let it be. Just let it be and come back to the practice. Okay? And then all will become clear. <laughs> That's the nature of shamatha. Tune your instrument and it will start to, uh, to play more and more sweetly. Okay? Good. We still have some minutes. Hands from the floor. Yes, Noah. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Microphone coming. You mentioned in your, uh, your pre-meditation talk that you would love to see more uh, realized beings talk about their realization and yeah. talk about their experience doing that. Mm -hmm. But I thought the, this, there was like a Tibetan or maybe not Tibetan Buddhist, but just a Buddhist taboo against talking about your own realizations. And that's why nobody talks about them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. yeah it's a two-edged sword. It's not true that nobody talks about them. Uh, for example, let's say, let's start with this person. What was the name? Oh, yeah, Gautama. <laughs> what was the first thing he saw when he saw this hippie, you know, walking down the road? He met a hippie, basically. Maybe he was a really cool hippie, but, you know. And he, sa he said, I'm perfectly enlightened. He didn't, oh, he didn't say, oh, shucks, I don't really have any realization. You know? <laughs> he just kind of laid his cards on the table and said, I'm, I'm perfectly awakened. So there is a point at which it's simply time to be candid. Um, and the Buddha was just unimpeded. Um, there have been many cases since then of other people who will either very simply declare what their realization is, or they will demonstrate it. They'll demonstrate it. And that can be done. Although the demonstrations, again, this is the greatest, again, the greatest miracle is teaching Dharma effectively so you actually liberate people. That's the greatest one. Because if, you know, if there were a teacher here sitting next to me who just started suddenly to levitate, you know, to rule right up to the ceiling, that'd be very impressive. That would indicate 
good, samadhi must be good, your, your prana system must be in really good shape, uh, I hope you're enjoying it, it looks fun, uh, entertaining, although the entertainment value is tapering off, uh, is there anything else you can do? <laughs> you know, show us your bag of tricks, you know, you can do that, can you do anything more? Um, so there are times, and we read about it in the Pali Canon numerous times, when the B Buddha demonstrated his powers, demonstrated his compassion, and so did a number of his disciples. It was not uncommon. So it's not true in any school of Buddhism, not Theravada or any other school, that you, know, you just always keep your, keep your cards close and don't show anything. If you are an arhat, if you are, if for that matter, even if you're a stream enterer, let alone if you're a Buddha, if you're highly realized in the path, then there's a point at which concerns about, oh, if I should tell other people of my realization, maybe this will bolster my ego give me a greater sense of pride and self-importance. Well, there's a point at which that's just not a question anymore. It doesn't come up. So most recently, the most obvious one I've seen, I, have not, I never met, met him personally, but this Dupang, Dupang Rinpoche I mentioned earlier, whose uh, video, this videotaping of, or how do you say, so videotape of him looking right into the camera. This is in the, in the, in the film, documentary film, Yogis of Tibet. And this is a man had been meditating for something like 60 years professionally, and looked right into the camera and said, I can remember all my past lives. You know, that's rare. But judging by the context of that, because I know some of the background, I take him very seriously. Most people, you know, especially Westerners, because you know, we just don't know much better often, and we don't have a contemplative, right now we don't have a contemplative, contemplatively rich, sophisticated, mature civilization to live in. Christianity has a very rich one, but it's not very obvious anymore. And so, so a lot of people can easily mis-evaluate their hunches, their imagination, their dreams for reality. It's very easy to do. In, this, in the case of this man, given the kind of training he'd been through, given the kind of community in which he trained, I take him very seriously. So it does happen. It does happen. Um, so it wasn't so much, I wish, I wish these, these yogis would all you know, just spill their beans, you know, spill the beans, talk, okay, let, let it all hang out, and everybody gets on, gets the, give, give me the mic, no, give me the mic, you know, <laughs> they're all scrambling for the mic uh, to you know, tell about their extraordinary realization. Because um, I utterly respect, and I'm, I'm, not that I have any realization to hide, but it is, it is the lineage and the tradition I wish to follow myself. Uh, that one day, if I ever get any realization, I don't, plan to you know, go to the nearest broadcasting station and, you know, trumpet it. Um, how should we say? There's a balance there. I think there is a clean way, and I've already discussed it, a clean way to let the word out without it highlighting an ego. And that's where science can come in, although we don't necessarily have to have science here. It can be done without science. But that is having a group of people, having an observatory up where we have 40 people, all of them devoting themselves 8, 10, 12 hours a day for months on end until, like little kernels of uh, popcorn in a popcorn popper, one pops and then pop, 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 <laughs> you know, get more and more achieving shamatha and then going right back into either that, either that popcorn cooker or another one and going for bodhicitta, going for vipassana and so forth. And so we got pop, pop, and get bodhicitta popcorn, and we get vipassana popcorn, and you know, all kinds of wonderful popcorn. Um, this, of course, is the ideal. This is why Klaus is willing to devote so much time, resources, to this. Uh, why there's nothing I'd rather do in the world than to help people do this. 
Um, but if you have a cluster of them, not just Shapkar going up into the mountains and achieving by himself, and he actually was quite candid in his autobiography, he was quite candid about his realizations. So it's not always the case. But again, given the very materialistic society we have globally, and the lust for power, so without having to go over you know, discussions they've already had, I think this would be very inspiring in a very clean and unencumbered way to let the word out. And that is, you have a whole cluster of people, and amongst them, one, two, three, achieve. Uh, then letting that out, and letting scientists, under contractual obligation, study them, try to understand as much as they can from their own perspectives, behavioral, neurophysiological, and so forth, understand what's going on, um, and for that matter, it would be very nice if we, you know, have one, five, ten, fifteen, twenty people here achieving shamatha and beyond. Um, I'd be very happy to pay for their airline tickets to fly up to Dharamsala. You know, check with His Holiness. I would, I, I would tell him, I have a lot of confidence. This person is a chief shamatha. I'd like you to meet this person yourself and let us know your appraisal. Have I made a mistake? If we have confirmation by His Holiness, that would mean a lot. And then, as soon as it's in the hands of His Holiness, then I would utterly trust whatever He would do with, it, with that information. Um, but just working with the scientist and this theme of individual anonymity, but full transparency in terms of the actual nature of the realization, I think that would be really good. Yeah. So, but from the ground up, that's the big deal. From the ground up. So that, I mean, it's just like the relaxation, stability, and vividness all over again. If we start at Dzogchen, and there's great realizations, maybe the person, and coming back to the conversation with, with Ilsa, if a person, you know, just kind of soft pedals through shamatha and says, well, whatever, that's for, you know, other people, and ba 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 ba, goes right to Dzogchen, and then says, I have, you know, I have authentic Dzogchen realization, maybe they do. How do I know? How do I know? Could be. I mean, if one person can hear a verse of Dharma and he re realizes nirvana, Maybe another person can just start practicing Dzogchen and realize Dzogchen. I don't know. I mean, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. But um, is it durable? Do the insights... Here's something I mentioned to one of you one-on-one, -on -one, I think very useful. So let's, let's end on this note. This I find very useful. Very clear in the Vajra essence. The Nelu Ranjung by Duju Mingba. Four levels of maturation within one's spiritual practice. The first one is in Tibetan called goa, goa. Simply, very clearly translated as understanding, understanding. So let's imagine that you come to a dharma talk and some person who has studied well, knows how to articulate clearly, is intelligent, intelligent enough, comes and gives you a good solid dharma talk on shamatha. Describes maybe a method, settling the mind, you can, just, you can describe that half an hour with plenty of time left over. And then and maybe in a one-and-a-half-hour discourse then gives you a, a tour of the nine stages and a, a brief discussion, what's it like to achieve shamatha. Does that in an hour and a half. At the end of it, if you've been listening well, maybe you even have a recording, so you listen to it multiple times, you can say, ah, that's what is about. Got it. Okay, I understand. I think I'm going to go off and teach shamatha now. I heard an hour-and-a-half discourse on it. I understand it. And you could, you can fool some of the people some of the time, <laughs> you know, but that's goa. Do you understand what does the word shamatha mean? How do you practice it? What's it like to achieve it? You might even get some of the bigger context. What's it for? What's the significance? What can you use it for? Uh, and you can understand all of that, and then you can teach shamatha, okay? And on, on the basis of goa, understanding. 
And when you're teaching it, you're teaching it without error. What you're saying is correct. You're rather like a, a parrot who has it come in one ear and then says, Balewana shamata. <laughs> you know, you can pass it on. And that's understanding. Although the parrot really doesn't understand much, I'm presuming, although among birds I've heard they're pretty clever. So that's koa. And then, but let's imagine you get a bit more inspired than that. You say, you know, that actually sounds pretty good. I think I have noticed a bit of excitation on occasion in my mind stream. Maybe some laxity too. Maybe I'm one of those people who could do some useful shamatha. And you start practicing it, and you start getting some experiences like the likes of which all of you have now had, at least for the last six weeks. And then you can, then you can teach, you can pass on. You can start t- telling other people about shamatha, maybe giving them some meditation lessons. And your lessons may be good. That is, they're, they're clear, they're accurate, and you have some experience to draw on. I know what it's like to be, have excitation. I know what introspection is like from a first person. I know what mindfulness, I know what laxity is like. And I know some of the nyam that come up. So you have some experience. It's good. So that's a deeper level. That's nyongma. And this could be for loving kindness. It could be for shamatha. It could be, you know, for the whole array. And then there's tokpa. Tokpa. Koa, nyongma, tokpa. Tokpa is realization. Pretty much everybody translates it as realization, and it's a good translation. In the case of realizing shamatha, well, that really means simply achieving shamatha. Um, but maybe let's shift here, because we don't so often speak of achieve, uh, realizing shamatha, but rather achieving shamatha. So let's slif- shift over now to the knowledge mode of, let's say, realization of emptiness, shunita. Okay? So first, understand it. You, went to a, you took a course, you, you took an academic term, a course on Madhyamaka philosophy, and now you've understood it, you wrote an exam, you got an A. Good, your understanding is good. You didn't meditate for a second, but you can write a good paper, and now you get a PhD, and you can teach right out of Goa. And you can teach other people how to get PhDs, and all lay, lay, lie, or rest, or be limited to the level of Goa understanding. Because that's what academic approach to Buddhism is really pretty much about, is understanding. It's not about experience. You do that on your, in, your, in your spare time, and don't talk about it. And then you start meditating on emptiness, and you get some experience. Something filters through. And you're kind of getting a sense, ah, this, this really is meditating on emptiness. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting it. I'm getting some sense of what this is about. And then you med- meditate further and further until it's rather like having a nail where you just press it into the wood, and then you get the hammer, and you go, and you just hit it straight on, and that nail just goes boom, and just goes deep into the wood, you know, with just whack. And boy, that nail knows it got hit. It was just a spot-on, absolute target. Good carpenter. That's realization. You nail it. You know it. You ascertain it. You got it. Boom. It penetrated. You penetrate it, it penetrates you. It's a mutual penetration. That's tohpa. There's no doubt about it. This is not experience. This is not a hunch. This is not getting some impression. This is nailed it. That's tohpa. But Dujum Lingba, I think it was said that tohpa is like a patch on a piece of clothing. It can come off. You can actually realize something and then unrealize it. You can know it and then not know it anymore. It can fade. And that is, you can have tokpa, you can have realization of emptiness without having achieved shamatha. And then it turns into a memory. 
you know? Maybe your favorite memory, all of my all-time favorite memory. There was Jefferson Airplane, there was the Beatles, there was Realization of Emptiness, the good old days. <laughs> but then there's Ding Topa, and this is where we'll end. Ding Topa, or Deng Topa. Deng Topa. Gaining confidence. Gao Da Dimadenga Deng. Deng Topa. Gaining confidence. And to come back to the analogy of striking the nail, the first whack and the nail really goes in. But if it's only one whack, you could imagine kind of wiggling, wiggling, wiggling and pulling it out, right? But imagine you hit it whack and because you've got shamatha, you keep on hitting it whack in the same spot. Bam, bam, bam. And, to, and then you, you really whack it and the head of the nail goes down beneath the surface of the wood. Well, that little nail's not coming out. Not by any natural means. It's there to stay. That nail's basically made its home in this piece of wood and for the, for the life of the nail, until it just rusts into nothing, that's, that's where it stays. Deng Topi, you've gained confidence. That realization has now gone into your marrow. That realization gone into your bloodstream. There's no part of your mind that's not touched by that realization. And you won't fall back. That's Ding Topa. So, to have people narrating, so unlike Shapkar, who is very coy, that is, he said, you know, obviously he was intimating that he had achieved shamatha, I achieved bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality, and then I went on the next, into the next practices. And then he describes, you know, practice, and practice realization, practice realization. What would be very helpful is if we had 40 people here, and we have 15, 20 people just in Mexico alone, and we have half a dozen down in Brazil, we have another dozen in Australia, and 20 over there in, in, in Europe, and then, good measure, I want to see Mugi, good 20 or 30 Mongolians, these tough Mongolians, they're tough, practicing, all of us in, interconnected with internet, and keeping our accounts, keeping our accounts, and then within a protected forum, sharing the experience when it seems helpful, until we have one, and then five, and then fifteen, and twenty, and forty, and sixty accounts of people achieving shamatha. I like to see a book like that. A book, a compendium. People recently, over the last ten years, who have achieved shamatha, this is how they did it. This is their diet, this is where they lived, this is how many sessions they had per day, this is how it progressed, these were the problems, this is how they antidote to the problems. Lay it all out, make it transparent. Just that, without any science at all. That would be worth its weight in diamonds. But I would have rather have that book than any amount of diamonds. Because what can you buy with diamonds? You know, just stuff. So uh, what's the big deal? A book like that would be worth its weight of anything. So that's what I like to see. And that, that's for starters. That's on the on-ramp. And then, did you achieve bodhicitta? Did you use it for something really, really worthwhile? And then describing what's it like What's it like to actually have bodhicitta now flow like an artesian well from your own mind stream? And then on beyond that, on beyond that. That'd be quite good. So, something like that. Good. See you Monday morning. Jolly good whole day, just practice, nothing else to do. Fantastic. <laughs>